Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey everybody, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Penn Holderness. You are so... Welcome to the Holderness Family <laughs> Podcast. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> You're, no, seriously, thank you for hitting the play button. You, <laughs> I, I, I think I had typed welcome in the document and he... <laughs> I added you are so. You are anyway. so welcome. Okay, Seriously, so we're glad you're here. We are so happy you're yeah. here. And this is such a good... I say this every time, but so seriously, this is a good one. Housekeeping news before we get... Uh, too far, our game family face-off. It's so exciting. It's going to be in stores. We want to include new cards, uh, and we also want to include you. So if you go to the show notes of this episode, also sign up for a newsletter. We'll put the form in there. It's a Google form. You can give us suggestions of clues for, like, the actic category or the guess it, which is, like, the song category. And if we pick your suggestion, we'll put your name on the card, and it'll be in stores, and it's very exciting. Um, okay, to today's episode. I want to set the scene. Go. Okay. When we had babies and where our babies were babies, people say, oh, just wait until they're teenagers. They sure do. Well, they turn to teenagers and I'm like, what? They're great kids. They're not mutants. They don't have like big behavioral outbursts or issues. They're, right. You know, their teachers love them. It's great. But now I'm getting it. Finally. And, and please explain because we, first of all, we have written several articles and we do believe that this is a wonderful time yes like we we really love the kids that our kids have become but there are a lot of new variables at this age right i think what all those kind-hearted people were trying to warn us about it was just purely navigating the emotional life of teenagers yeah and you forget that how much they don't know you forget how they don't know how to navigate a relationship. As an adult, I am still learning. Yeah, same here. And and I will also say this this stage of life has been the most interesting for my children because it's the one that I can remember the most directly. I don't have a ton of emotional memories before the age of 10. Mm -hmm. I have a lot from about 10 to 16. 
right? And, and probably peaking around 13 or 14. And there is biology to that. There's hormones, there's changes. I mean, our, our guest is going to tell us a little bit about those as well toward the end of it. But I mean, you're right. It is like you need, if there's ever a thing where you needed a manual, there's a gajillion books about having a baby and having an infant. There's not quite as many um, about how to deal with the emotional lives of teenagers, but we have found one very good one and it comes with a very good person who we have on anytime that Kim needs personal help, but wants to <laughs> pass it off as a podcast. <laughs> so I will add that this time is hard. Yeah. So um, you being a teenager is hard. You add on a pandemic and there is an adolescent mental health crisis so severe that the U.S. Surgeon General has issued a rare advisory on protecting youth mental health. The pandemic was hard on all of us. I think it was especially hard on kids. I will, as a trigger warning, say we did ask our guest, Dr. Lisa DeMoore, several questions about the recent uptick in suicide attempts among adolescents. She had some perspective on that that was bizarrely comforting and just gave the full picture there. But if that is something that's going to trigger you and talk that's going to trigger you, that that happens in this podcast. Yeah, and if it doesn't, trigger you. I just encourage you to give it a good listen because to Kim's point, it was a little bit encouraging what yes. she said. Dr. Lisa DeMore is a leading expert in the field of adolescent psychology. She's penned two bestsellers. These are books that have transformed my ways of parenting. Those books are Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Her newest book is so timely and much needed, especially as we navigate post-pandemic life. It's called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, Compassionate Adolescents. She does include both research on both boys and girls in this book, which is amazing. Dr. Damore co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, writes about adolescents for the New York Times, appears as a regular contributor to CBS News, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and maintains a clinical practice. She is busy, and so we are so grateful for her time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lisa. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me back. I love being with you. Uh, Mike, first of all, your voice. I know Penn's going to right away talk about it. Well, I was going to wait, but <laughs> I, I was able to listen to some of the audio portion of her book, and I don't want to be disturbed when I'm listening to her. <laughs> it's like, very it's, ASMR. It's, it's very meditation ASMR-like. <laughs> I also I want to give you a, cre a credit right off the top. I know this is your second or third book, but you're... I love your your writing style has gotten so good. In the first page, you had a, um, a an observation that made me realize that you were definitely experiencing this, and it wasn't someone else. You described someone's haircut as a bedhead that had somehow survived the entire day, and I just want you to know that's the phase that we are going through with our son now. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I really um, I love caring for kids. I love being a psychologist because fundamentally our job is just to observe. And and I those details matter. Those details bring you right to the moment of like, oh yeah, I've seen that kid. <laughs> I know exactly what that is. Yeah. We're raising that kid. And I will say, I sent I, I'm reading the book. I'm almost done. It's so good, you guys. Oh, but I you. sent a screenshot of the the front cover to a friend who is also a Dr. Lisa fangirl, like bragging, like, look what I got. And she's like, Can her next book be about the emotional lives of parents mothering? of teenagers? <laughs> yeah, of moms and dads. I was like, like, yeah, I'll, I'll let her know. I'll let her know. 
Well, I, you know, it's interesting. The last section of the book really rolls up its sleeves on that Mm -hmm. because it is really powerful and really intense and it stirs up a huge amount to be raising teenagers. And I will say this as the mother of teenagers, that there was a lot when my older daughter was going through her senior year of high school that I'm suddenly having memories of my senior year that had been long forgotten. And it was a really powerful and sometimes very uncomfortable experience. And I I describe it in the book as sometimes like a harrowing psychological hall of mirrors (laughs) where you're like, okay, I'm parenting a kid through something that I remember being the kid in the parenting seat on. And now I'm reconsidering how my parents handled that moment. And I'm not so sure. It's dizzying at times. Dizzying is a really good word for that. And I feel that we we are in that se- your, the season you're describing where I am trying to unravel my own childhood with very well-intentioned parents and the whole thing. And then witnessing the hard stuff my kids are going through. And man, is it, it's been a walk. That's, that's for sure. It is a walk. It is a walk. And as I was going through it as a mom, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like there's so many kind of apples to apples experience in adolescence that you don't necessarily have in early childhood. You know, that there's teaching your kid to drive, which then brought back all of my memories of being in the car with my mother and her trying to teach me how to drive. And I really like it. It was spicy. And then there's the, you know, figuring out where to apply to college and there's applying to college and there's saying goodbye for college that you can just measure right against what happened for yourself. And, and I thought, oh, it's not, you don't remember the first day of your kindergarten in the same way. So when your kid's doing it, you're not actually having this you know, multi-dimensional experience as you go through it. But man, as they get older, it is rich. Speaking of that, our kids have gone through something in the pandemic that we never had to go through. So I feel as if so many of the things, yes, I can do that mirror job very well, but they, are, they, came, like, they came out of the oven a little different out of the pandemic items shifted during flight right yeah and it messes with the schedule right like there is there is a schedule when it comes to adolescent development you talk about that like what is the what the normal schedule is we were we're we're very scheduled people our kid didn't start talking our son until like a little bit later we had like a someone from the county come in and they were like You guys, he's fine. <laughs> Relax. It's a, it's we a, like a timeline. It's though. a few months behind, and once he starts talking, and of course, once he started talking, he like won't stop. So, sorry, that was just an aside. I guess my question is, how did COVID affect that schedule? You know, we're seeing things all over the map, but we are definitely seeing what you're describing. Mm-hmm. And the best language I prefer is a bit of delay. I prefer that language over loss. Mm-hmm. And and I think that as we hear about people talking about what happened, I think delay is a better term. And this just came up and I was in a meeting with a colleague here in town, a woman named Habiba Grimes, who brought it up. And I was like, she's right. We should be talking delay, not loss, because that's more reassuring. But we are seeing delay. So the kinds of things we're seeing delayed, one is actually being skilled at managing peer conflict. Not that kids were great about that before the pandemic. Right, right. But we are seeing nonsense going on in the ninth grade that used to really die down by the end of eighth, you know, and so kids are carrying some of that forward. The other delay we're seeing is there's just a lot more anxiety about going out into the world and and practicing leaving. 
which is really what teenagers need to do. So at the statistical level, schools are reporting, and this is districts across the board, like literally from the wealthiest districts of public schools to the most impoverished, they're seeing school absence or school truancy or, you know, school refusal, whatever you call it, at levels that have never been in place where kids are like, I feel anxious, I'm not going to school, mm -hmm. right? And that didn't used to be an option that you just didn't go to school. And then we had a year and a half to two years of like, mm, you don't actually have to physically step foot in the building. And the kids are like, mm, I think I won't go. So kids having um, practice and wherewithal around managing uncomfortable situations is delayed. We're not seeing um, kids feeling as brave as we would typically see when they've enjoyed it's a sort of a funny way to say it, sort of steady atmospheric pressure to keep trying new things. Mm -hmm. That that makes perfect sense. And we're experiencing that. So early in the book, uh, you were setting the scene to talk about emotions and challenges that kids face. And you wrote, to put it bluntly, somewhere along the way, we became afraid of being unhappy. And I was like, dude, yeah. And I have to say, let me let me also add this in with something you wrote about that studies conducted in emergency medicine departments in early 2000, uh, 2021 found visits for suspected suicide attempts by increased by 51% for teenage girls and by 4% for teenage yeah. boys. First of all, we'll get into the disparity yeah. of my theory in that for a second. But, okay, when you say we became uncomfortable with we afraid of being unhappy, I think I heard somewhere along the way that statistic early on and so knowing and hearing the stories of kids taking their own lives at such an alarming rate, I definitely went in as more of the snowplow parent. I'm like, let's erase any uh, conflict. Let's make everything great. You didn't make the team. It's okay. Like, let's, like, let's sunshine. So there's a balance and I'm not, I'm not doing it. Right? <laughs> I'm not doing it, but I'm so, I hear those statistics and they're so alarming. Yeah. They're scary. They're, they're scary, scary that I just want to erase any option of feeling bad ever. And that's not the, that's not the way to do it either. So I'm, my question is, uh, WTF. Yeah, uh, there it is. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I'm like, she's going to, she's going to drop a WTF at the end of this. Cause yeah. What do I do? Yeah. 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 Okay. So this is a big part of why I wrote the book because two things happened at once. One is we had the pandemic come along, which really did exacerbate distress in teenagers and also has in its wake, you know, there are all of these terrifying headlines. There are all of these terrifying statistics. I mean, it's it's a very frightening time to be the parent of a teenager. And I think in its own way, then it becomes a frightening time to be a teenager, mm -hmm. right? If you're seeing the statistics and your parents are responding to you like you are made of glass, mm -hmm. that's that's uncomfortable. The other thing that happened side by side with it, and this was in place before the pandemic, is that we started to just really not be okay with negative emotions at all. Mm -hmm. Like we just didn't want them. And and I think the wellness industry has very much cheered this posture along. Like you don't like negative feelings, that's fine. You can buy all of these things that will help you not have those feelings. And so that was being encouraged. Put the two together, now you have very, very frightened families and very, very tense kids. So the goal in this book and this is the central premise of the book, and I hammer it to death, you're probably tired of me saying it in the book, is to be really clear about what mental health is. Mental health is not about feeling good. It is about having feelings that fit the moment you're in and then managing them well. 
So your kid can come home really upset if something really upsetting happened at school. You know, they person they liked said they don't like them back or they got a lousy grade on a test they thought they had a handle on. Kids do get upset and bluntly should get upset. We want to see distress. Often it is evidence of mental health, which is a completely different way of thinking about it than the culture sits in right now. I will tell you point blank, psychologists by and large were like, distress, dis you know, whatever, like that's a Wednesday. Like we don't get anxious about distress very often. What we want to see is, okay, then what does the kid do next? Does the kid come in the house, complain to you, get some relief by complaining, then roll around on the floor with a dog, then ask to have their favorite snack, then go in their room and listen to their angry playlist for a while because they're really frustrated about everything and it helps them get their feelings out and then show up at dinner okay again, right? That's a beautiful outcome. Those are great adaptive strategies. Or does the kid roll in the house and is up in their room smoking weed because that is their best option they can figure out for dealing with distress, or they hop online and they're jerks to everybody because they're like, if I'm upset, everybody's upset, right? I mean, there's other ways kids cope that we do worry about. And so that's what I want families to focus on, not whether or not their kids in distress. If you have a teenager, like you should count on it multiple times a day. Like, yes. I mean, you really, really should pivot all of our focus to the question of, so then what does the kid do? Or what will the kid take from us by way of support? But we cannot prevent distress. We cannot get rid of it quickly. That was never on the menu. And that's actually not our job. Hey, hang in there. We're going to be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, cathartic, exhausting, or even exhilarating. But one thing's for certain— if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you will gain insights and uncover truths that you can only find in therapy. Get those personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support by signing up for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. 
Talkspace is also affordable and in-network with most major insurers. To celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash Holderness. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Holderness to get $80 off your first month with code SPACE80 and to show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Holderness with code SPACE80. I want to take uh, a moment and talk about a personal journey that Kim and I have been on in the last week. You mentioned preventing distress and it being inevitable. We have heard many therapists say that. We have subscribed to that. We want to set our kids up to be able to deal with failure. To be resilient. Right. So So then we had to buy a car for our daughter. And it became like a microcosm for our entire discussion because it's like, well, we don't want to get her something too nice because, I mean, like we need her to learn how to, you know, like be okay with it. And then, but then there's like these driver's side airbags and these overhead, overhead airbags, airbags and driver's and side airbags front and lane assist. assist braking. And so she has a freaking nicer car than us now. Um, <laughs> but, like, but it's used. I, you won't I, get a new car. I submit. That when it comes to buying a car, like we just snowplow parented that, and I don't know if I regret it. <laughs> That's I different. don't know that you made the wrong choice either. Okay, okay, right? I mean, because cause, cause right. what we're talking about is like kid safety, and new drivers are not great drivers. Right. We it's like no cars. Right. So if you have the resources, either in terms of time to hunt down that kind of car and money to pay for that kind of car, like, you know, I mean, I remember when my older daughter was learning to drive. I was on a walk and I was like, you know what I want to get her? I want to get her a tank. I don't think they're allowed yeah. in our community. I, I but said, like, said that. Tank. See her we couldn't find tank. a tank. You know, an yeah, actual tank. But it was and weird how. Coming across yeah. the lawn. <laughs> it, it did become this little bit where we were, we were trying to justify like being overbearing when it came to parenting. And I don't know why, but I saw parallels to buying a car and the way that I approach my kids understanding failure and I part of me was like "Ooh, did I mess up no no I mean I think there's so much that we do as parents that is also about like we have to be able to sleep at night we have to manage our anxiety having a new driver is terrifying like it is absolutely terrifying (laughs) I mean my experience it wears off like you kind of get used to it that's what's happening yeah no but it's really scary at the outset but I think the the way what I want parents to focus on, like, here's what I want parents to worry about their behavior. If they are equating uncomfortable with unmanageable, mm. that's when it's time for parents to get concerned. Kids are going to be uncomfortable a lot. Very, very little of that is going to be unmanageable. And in fact, our job is to really use their discomfort as like the classroom where they're going to learn how to manage all these feelings. If every time the kid kid is uncomfortable, the parent's like, you're uncomfortable, make it stop and treats it as though the kid cannot manage it. Now you're in trouble or you're setting up a situation you don't want to be in. Okay. So that's where I think there's the dance, right? Because I think that our kids definitely need a safe space to practice being uncomfortable and they need to be uncomfortable. Every, everything I have of in my life is because I was like rejected from something, turned down for something, didn't get that job. Like all those really uncomfortable things that I cried about are why I am here where I am. And I'm very thankful for it. So we need that. But also like if I can circle back to the, the fact that these, these suicide rates are, are alarming 
first of all, can we go to, are the rates up by 51% for girls, 4% for boys? Is it that boys were already doing this or they behave in a different way? What, what, why the disparity? So that's a super weird statistic. It's what we have. And one thing I will tell you about suicide stats is that they lag a very, very long time. So what that statistic is, is number of kids who were brought to the ER for a suspected suicide attempt. So this is not number of kids who died by suicide. Got it. Um, I called some very close colleagues who specialize in adolescent suicidality. And I'm like, what is this disparity about? Like, this is weird. Like, we don't usually see that kind of right. huge gap. And they were like, we don't really know, but we really may think it may be that girls more than boys in the pandemic, the social isolation got to them in a way it did not get to the boys. So that was part of it. Okay. But then the other thing, one of my really brilliant colleagues, Jonathan Singer, who I was talking to said, he said, it's not actually clear that the amount that any teenager was doing stuff that could have been seen as a suicide attempt it's not clear it went up. It's that the parents were home all day, right? Uh, so the kid comes out of the bathroom and they've maybe, you know, self-injured a bit. Everybody is terrified as we were throughout the pandemic. And then if your kid's harming themselves, suddenly that kid shows up at the ER. That kid's going to go into those stats maybe. Whereas pre-pandemic, maybe even the exact same behavior, the parent would have never been aware. Mm -hmm. So Here's here's the real tension in talking about suicidality in teenagers. It is terrifying. It is the worst possible outcome. There's, you know, there's some we prevent it at all costs, right? I mean, that that is right. the thing that there's no way to talk about it that is fundamentally reassuring. Because actually, I do want parents to be highly attentive mm -hmm. and aware. The reality is um, we don't know that suicide rates went up. In terms of actual completed okay. suicides in the pandemic, we don't have those data. And here's another statistic that I'm going to give you just to offer reassurance, but it's a very strange way to do it because I'm comparing rates of one group to another, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about suicide. So like one suicide in any group is too many suicides. But we have very sturdy data and have for a long time that adolescents die by suicide at a rate lower than every older age group. Okay. Which People don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. And it is just the flat out stat that exists. And I really understand why people don't talk about that, because, of course, we don't want to in any way seem to be diminishing what it means for a young person to take their life. Like we would never want to. But then the tension I sometimes run into with that is, but we report on adolescent suicide so disproportionately that it leaves parents of teenagers feeling very, very frightened and often with the impression that the person most likely to die by suicide is a teenager when statistically we know that's actually not true. Okay. That's like, it's like bizarrely comforting. And I feel really uncomfortable laying yes. out the stats, but I'm also a scientist and it's our job to say, here's what we know from the data, right? And yeah. we're going to tell you the scary data, but we're also going to tell you the full picture of the data. And I mean, statistically, it's middle-aged men who are most likely to die by suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, um, can, I asked this question to Emily King and a lot of other people who come out who come on here. And um, last time we had Emily King on, we were talking about schools and education and she saw it as an emergent, like an emergency, what was going on 
in our schools, like something that she needed to get out and say, like, we are not the way we're educating and expecting our kids is wrong and it needs to get completely rebuilt. Are there any systemic things in society now that you're concerned about in that same way? When it comes to parenting and adolescence? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think it very much dovetails with where we just were. I worry about how anxious we are about teenagers. I worry that it undermines our ability to give them what they most need, which is to be a steady presence for them. And I am very aware that when there is so much media about adolescent mental health crisis that, and I've had teenagers say this to me, you know, where, you know, they tell their parent about just a lousy day and the parent's like, but you're not going to kill yourself, are you? Uh And I totally understand where the parent is coming from. Like I get it all day. And the kid is like, whoa, like I wasn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't, you know, and so it feels very strange for the kid and they, don't walk out of that feeling, actually, I think the way they hope to feel. Let me just say something on that front, because, of course, parents have this question on their mind, like they're worried. So I want to talk through, like, if you are at all concerned about your kid, right? Part of how we can be a steady presence is if we feel like we can ask if we have to. So let me tell you how to do it, because you can do this. If you have any reason to be worried about your kid's safety, the way I would suggest doing it is to say something like, This may feel very out of the blue. This may not even be something on your radar, but I need to ask because you're so upset or because I saw a headline that really rocked me this morning. Are you having any thoughts of hurting yourself or ending your life? Like just, you can just ask, just Mm -hmm. flat out ask. Most, I mean, overwhelming most of the time, kids will be like, no, 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 no. And then you're good to go. If they're like, I don't know, I don't know. Or maybe say, okay. And then you go act on that, right? Then you get them to the care. But what we know, the reason people don't ask this question is they're afraid they're going to give their kid the idea. Right. Okay. Here are very, more very reassuring data. We have studied this. And what we know is that if a young person is not suicidal, being asked about suicidality does not give them the idea of being suicidal. We know that that does not happen. But we also know that if a young person is suicidal, they feel better if somebody asks. So Mm. I want parents to feel they can ask this so that they can go back to being the steady presence they want to be. I think ask it in a way that acknowledges to the kid that it may feel very out of the blue and that there's a lot of context that's bringing about this question to help the teenager understand why it's coming up when it is. On that note, you you talk very extensively. This book I love because it your previous books had focused on girls and this one we're including boys in the picture too, which is a mom of both. I I love that there's both in this Um, boys and girls are very, very different, but you talked both do want to share. They do. Even though we ask, how is, how is school? Fine. I mean, even though that's typically the response we get, they do. And we know that they do want to share you were ta- you talked a little bit, especially boys, because I think that there are these sort of gender roles that they, they get programmed very early that they're not supposed to do that and react to that. What are ways we can help our boys, our young men, communicate more, be open more, find ways to talk, if not with us, friends, that sort of thing? So you're absolutely right. You know, I, I did an entire chapter on gender 
and just dug around in all the research and learned so much. And I just, it was fascinating and then fun to try to synthesize it all. And we do have two streams of research that support exactly what you're saying. One is we don't socialize boys to talk about their feelings as much as we socialize girls to talk about their feelings. And the other is that by fifth or sixth grade, boys who are trying to consolidate a sense of masculinity decide that talking about feelings is a girl thing, like in finger quotes, like girl <laughs> thing. So we have both of those problems going. Now, interestingly, and this is something I learned while working on the book, it's so often in homes, this part wasn't a surprise, that it's the mom who's asking about feelings and talking about feelings. And so in my work, when I started to, as I got through this chapter, when moms were saying to me, what can I do to get my son to talk more about feelings? I started saying, you need to find a man in his life to be having that conversation. Because I think what happens, especially for these middle school and older boys, is if the only person in the home, and we're presuming a you know heterosexual two-parent family, who's talking about feelings is mom, they're like, see, I told you guys, it was a girl thing. So it actually has to be the men in boys' lives who are initiating these conversations, who are expressing their own emotions, if we want to get boys talking. Okay, I'm back. Um, <laughs> I, no, no I, I, I agree with you on this. Um, we, it's so funny. Uh, we'll, we'll just tell a fun story. Like when <laughs> I, uh, I had to tell him about the birds and the bees a couple, couple years ago. And men, just we just do it differently. Um, he was, I'm like, do you want to have this talk? He's like, yes, the, the, go ahead. I'm, I I, I kind of know most, but I'm like, okay, here we go. What's the best way to do this? And he's like, do you have to be looking at me? I'm like, no, let's get in the car. So we, <laughs> I was in the driver's seat of the car and he was behind me. And we had a very nice conversation about the penis and the vagina <laughs> with, without having to look at each other. And that yep. was that was how we did it. Brilliant. Um, right. right. So Keep them out of the hot seat. <laughs> Right. Keep him out of the hot seat. It, it, I think I could. He, I didn't have a section in the book, but I could have had a section called "Keep him out of the hot seat." Like you can have conversations if you keep him out of the hot seat. Right, and it, you're welcome to use the both looking the same directions while driving <laughs> um, method if you want to. But but since then we have, I think PC and I have struck up a good rapport. Um, and I think the thing that it took me the longest to figure out, and I'm just going to offer this up to other men when they're being asked to do this, is that it happens with our wives but we got to remember it with our kids. We're not there to fix it. We're there to listen to their feelings, to validate them. And the best thing we can ever say to a boy when you're talking to him is that must've been really hard for you to say. That was, that took a lot of courage for you to say. Beautiful. Um, that is beautiful. Gold star pen. I mean, I, I screw up a lot too. Cause I found myself doing it this morning. I'm like, that was really brave what you said. And I'm very proud of you for saying this. Now, what are we going to do about it? I'm like, shut up, Penn. Just, <laughs> just give him a second. Yeah. So we are, we're inclined to try to fix it, especially when it's our son, maybe even more so than our relationship, because that's me. I'm yeah. looking at me and I'm old enough to remember me at this age. Like you said before, I don't remember me when I was four. I definitely remember what you're going through right now. Yeah. Yep, and I don't want you to have to feel the way I felt, so let's get out in front of it. Yeah. As opposed, which says, so okay, comes from the most loving place in the world, also unwittingly suggests you being uncomfortable is going to be a problem for you or me. It's potentially dangerous or problematic, so let's not let it happen. And actually accelerates their sense of discomfort about yeah. unavoidable discomforts. And it that has been, I think, the the biggest thing I've learned in parenting is what Penn just said is to reframe from trying to fix everything right away. Um, 
you also had a section you had you know one of your clients or whatever they they texted you know it was a mom trying to communicate with her sons and a lot of their conversations were via text like they they felt safer to be open via text and that counts too right absolutely one of the ways i slice up how we support kids through emotions in the book is sometimes we're helping them express emotions and sometimes we're helping them bring emotions back under control Expression is expression is expression. If the kid is talking, if the kid is texting, if the kid is doing an angry dance, if the kid is drawing an image that like expresses how distressed they are, if they're writing in their journal and getting it out that way, if they're not talking to you, but they're telling a friend, from the view of psychology, we're like, we just want to see expression, but we're not going to say it has to happen according to the script that most parents have in their head, which is, hi, kid, you seem upset tell me what's wrong, and then I'll help you feel better. That's our script. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, it goes down that way. A huge amount of time, kids are expressing in all of these adaptive, effective, no-cost ways. And we're wondering, why aren't they talking more to me about this particular problem? You know, like, we have to be open. Yeah. And I, you also, uh, the roses and thorns kind of dinner convo. Can you talk us through, I, I thought that was a pretty good way to kind of model opening up. Absolutely. So it's corny and kids will go along with stuff and teenagers will go along with stuff. If you just say, I know this is corny, like you have to own it coming out of the gate, but it's a practice that a lot of families do where they talk about, you know, roses and thorns or the best part of the day and the worst part of the day, you know, and it's just a, you know, everybody goes around at the table and says a few, you know, pieces about this. And what it does is it, first of all, if there's a man in the home, it gives the boys, especially in the home, a chance to watch somebody else do it, you know, for let's say the dad to say, you know, I got really frustrated at work today, or I was really sad because a colleague that I care about, you know, moved on to another company or whatever. Like there can be, you know, talking about feelings like boys are watching it happen. And it also, it means that as sphinx-like as boys can be sometimes and girls can be sometimes, it's sort of like, just give us something, like just a little check-in. Like there's no, no one surprising you, you know, this happens in the evenings and it can be a way to get some feelings on the table. And I, but I agree. And you've, you've said this before, asking kids, tell me about your day. I, how many Zoom meetings do you have in a day? And do you want to talk about it at dinner time? Probably not. Probably so there's not. a, we try to ask different questions. Uh, you know, it's down to what did you eat for lunch or what did your friend eat for lunch to like, what made you laugh today? That's a tough one too, though, because he, he comes back with, or she, like it was a long day. I don't, I can't, I can't remember every time I laughed. <laughs> I know. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> it's, it is. I, I am trying to put myself in their shoes when they get done with school because school is a lot. And it's you're, when you're done with school and you come back to us, you're not getting their best version. They just gave their best version to school because we just asked them to give their best version at school. I think that that is one of the most useful insights in all of parenting, right? That kids really are holding it together quite phenomenally through the day. They are dealing with a whole bunch of people they did not choose, a whole bunch of adults they did not choose. They are really kind of, you know, ferried around like sheep from room to room to room doing things that they like. They're like, I didn't sign up for any of this and I do this all day long. And they are so lovely through it, usually. Really civil, really gracious. And I actually think a big part of how they 
manage that is either they're like, I'm going to come home and not have to think about this for, you know, the duration until I come back tomorrow, or I'm going to come home and I'm going to complain about all of this. But we need to understand that this is part of a system that allows them to be so really excellent under conditions that I promise you, if any one of us followed one of our kids through the day, we would tap out by third period. We'd be like, I cannot say, I'm going to punch someone. Like I need to be out of here. (laughs) So they're great. They're great. But I think Penn, you're exactly right. They come home and they're like, no, mm, I'm I'm done being nice for everybody else's benefit. I volunteered in uh, my son's art class a couple of pre-pandemic. So it was a few years ago. And I had to do like three periods of art to help the teacher. I needed to come home and take a nap. And I was just, I, I was literally just yeah. washing paintbrushes and making sure they, it, it, I'm, I'm imagining like you, like you with the and noise. Then, and oh my the, gosh. And, and then all, some yeah. kid on the way out hit me with his lunchbox. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't extend the same love to you that I extend to my child. I don't like you as much as I like my own kid. Get away from me. Um, yeah. So bless teachers, bless our kids going through that every day. Now. Okay. Back to your your book. Um, so there, there is there are a lot of similarities in just teens in the blanket in general. But was there anything that surprised you about the differences between a female teenager and a male teenager? Um, in general, no. Like the things yeah. I thought I would see when I went into the research were confirmed by the research that um, you know boys are socialized to not talk about vulnerable feelings. They are allowed a couple categories of feelings. They're allowed anger and pleasure at someone else's expense. Those are That's what's available to them. Girls enjoy this much wider expressive highway. Um, boys get those two lanes. Um, those things were all to be expected. The one finding that um, I really delighted in and cracked me up, and I was so glad that someone thought to ask the question this way. So I did go in thinking, oh, you know, the Girls are not going to have anger at their disposal, right? Only the boys are going to have that at their disposal. But when you actually look at the research, what we see is that when kids are young, boys express more anger than girls. But in adolescence, it actually flips. The girls express more outward anger than boys do at home, for sure. Um, but there is one form of anger, and I couldn't, I was so like admired the researchers who were this granular. There's one form of anger where b- girls outpace boys all through development and it's the expression of disdain oh yeah (laughs) okay that tracks that tracks i mean there's a whole side eye Uh, eye roll that's just disdain culture yeah look uh, keep let's let's uh, let's let's just let you talk i'm just gonna lay out exactly no i mean i just was like i was like thank i never would have thought to ask the question but they're 100 right and i just thought isn't this interesting so the um sometimes the cultural trope around like oh boys get to be mad girls only get to be sad that doesn't actually hold up so well in the research especially if you're going to look something as something as specific as disdain as an expression of aggression where you do see here's where you do see a special concerns though about girls expressing anger it's girls of color yeah. cannot safely express anger especially in schools they are way over punished for this mm-hmm. you know it's very disproportionate the um, response from the school and and then we also see in boys of color and this is a section in the book on gender is around the adultification of of black teenagers and so boys of color are seen as older than mm-hmm. they really are that's what we mean by adult, adultification and this is also true of girls of color older 
and and in a way that I found more heart-wrenching to describe it, like less deserving of protection, less endowed with childlike innocence. And so then when there's any expression of not even anger, but actually um, maybe standing up for oneself or advocating or maybe just displeasure, there is... Um, it is viewed through sort of hostility colored glasses by largely white audiences. So that piece, I wasn't surprised by it, but really getting into the literature and just seeing the extent of it was, um, you know, it's it's pretty powerful. That was hard to read as a mom of white kids. And we've tried to, you know, equip them with inclusive language and to be on the lookout for their friends of color. I mean, I haven't had to have those conversations and it was as it was gut wrenching to read that. Yeah, You're absolutely. Right. And how do you, and how do you communicate that to a child and say, you live in a world where you are treated as an adult, even though you're not one. Well, the way the term for this in the black community is the talk. Yeah. And it's not the sexual talk. It is the, if you are walking down the street or, yeah engaging in ordinary activities with your peers, you need to be very, very careful if police come by. Right. I mean, and it is a gut-wrenching thing to explore. What I would say for white readers is though we may not have to have this, you know, I can't, it's like hard to even picture talk with our kids. We need to be really, really thoughtful about how we regard teenagers of color. And we need to be really, really mindful that a lot of us consciously or not, are wearing hostility-colored glasses or do not, do, you know, do not extend to Black teenagers the same level of, um, you know, deserving of protection, deserving of, you know, childlike innocence that we extend to white teenagers. Like, we need to own our part in that piece of this. Absolutely. How early could that adult adultification happen, though? It could happen before you're a teenager, right? It is stunning. So one of the studies that I detail in that section was actually looking at fourth graders, right? So these are nine-year-olds. And the way the research was done is that um, largely white research subjects were shown videos of fourth grade boys, one black, one white, engaging in the exact same behavior, like running past a classmate's homework and accidentally like bumping it or something, you know, or um, forgetting to return something. So something like behavior normal, that like kid nine year old behavior. Yeah, totally garden variety. And then they asked for inferences about what was going on. And disproportionately, these fourth grade black boys were seen as trying to be harmful or trying to take something or whatever. So you're right, Penn, it, you know, it doesn't wait till adolescence. I mean, these are nine-year-olds. So, but they are seen as older and they are viewed through hostility cover, colored glasses by largely white audiences. So that's where our work begins and needs to sit all day, every day. Yeah. So not only is there a gender disparity, there's there's a huge disparity in what our kids will ever experience. But it's it, but it is a tough it's a tough read, but it's a worthy read for for those of us. And I'll I'll wrap this up by just one more question. What are you know as people go out and get your book? But what are the questions? we should be asking our kids to help them feel safe to open up and process and when, or, you know, what are the reactions? This I love a script. So our, our <laughs> kids come to us, they're very upset about something. What are those words we, we can be saying without trying to fix it, yep. hel helping yep. them get uncomfortable? Well, the way you're asking is so helpful to me because I think what it brings to mind is 
our job is to support however this child's going to manage this feeling in a way that's adaptive. And when I say that, I mean, gives them relief, does no harm. So the language might really be along the lines of saying, what would help you feel better, right? That, I think that's how we want to phrase it. And then we can put out a menu. Do you want to tell me about everything that happened? I'm happy just to listen. Do you want me to make your favorite snack? Do you want to go watch Phineas and Ferb a little while, take your mind off of it? But really focusing on this idea that there's this wide repertoire for helping oneself feel better, talking to us about the feelings is one item in that, and that we're really driving toward this idea that we have a kid who's moving towards leaving home who, when they are upset, can think, what would help me feel better? Mm -hmm. And can evaluate for that, that for themselves and sometimes it involves another person and sometimes they may say, oh, no, I know what I do when I need to feel better. And they manage it autonomously. And I think that's the piece that if there's anything that got disrupted on the parenting side in that in the pandemic, we had our kids so close through such a hard thing that them managing feelings really was a group project and was a two-year group project. And part of what we want to remember now is... We love it when our kids take their help around managing distress, but ultimately we want them to have good ways they can do that, that if we're not available, they're still okay and they have ways to manage. And I think that's really what I'm driving towards in this book is there's a good chunk of it is around how to get kids to talk to you, but a bigger chunk is on what are all of the other options available to your kid and how do you support those options as well? Wow. It's always so good to talk to you. I love Thank to hear you your voice me. and the words that you say. Thank you so much. And I always threaten to just, you know, get your cell phone number, pay your retainer, just right. to be on call. <laughs> See, we need Dr. Just Lisa with on every call. podcast, Kim is like, this is so useful. Dr. Lisa on call. Can you be my concierge shaman for the rest of my life. We really do. We're very fortunate to run across some really smart, smart, smart people who have found a way to get their message across to more than the average number of people that you see as a doctor. I want to like, just really quickly, what has that been like for you? I know that being um, a therapist, a psychiatrist, whatever, is usually such a one-on-one -on -one thing, but being able to create something that can reach a larger group like you're doing now. It is staggering to me. I mean, I really, I don't always, I'll be honest, I don't always enjoy the sort of public face of it. Like, it's not that fun to be out in the world all the time. Like, I'm a very private person and, you know, <laughs> you guys yeah. get it, right? But then I think when, I, when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm uncomfortable with just the sheer exposure that comes with working in this way, I think, well, okay, now wait a minute. I became a psychologist to be of help. And this is how I can be of help to a lot of people all at once in a way that I never could if I only practiced. And so that to me, you know, kind of makes it um, all together worthwhile. Like the goal is to be of use. And I do feel like, you know, thanks to incredible support from publishers and our podcast and, you know, all sorts of, you know, the New York Times, CBS, like I am able to be of use and I'm really grateful. We are very grateful. Well, good luck with this most recent book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Where can people find this book? Where can they find you? So the book is sold everywhere books are sold. Yeah. Um, I can be found at drlisademore.com is my website. Um, on Instagram, I'm at lisa.demore. Um, Facebook, just search my name. 
Um, those are the big places. Okay. And um, and then I have a podcast with my wonderful co-host, Rena Nainen, which is Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. Well, we have a bunch of personal questions in about a year because uh, our daughter's going to be driving by herself in about two months. And there's just all kinds of other stuff going on. So we're just going to hit you with a bunch of problems next time you come on. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.